This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I'm in Seattle today for the podcast, in person, in real life. Um, CDC guidelines are out and uh, vaccinated people can hang out without masks. And it just feels like a beautiful, beautiful time. Um, and so, yeah, we're on a, I got on a plane and uh, headed up to the Pacific Northwest to go talk to some brewers that I uh, wanted to talk to. And one of the people that I uh, was insistent on talking to is Steve Luke from Cloudburst Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks for swinging on by. You know, we wrote a, a breakout brewer story on Cloudburst back in 2017. Emily Hutto wrote it. And uh, we actually have a recipe for a Cloudburst beer, I believe, in the magazine, too. And so, uh, you know, all of that is there for subscribers of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. They should go back and check all of those stories out. Um, we're going to talk about brewing hazy beers. We're going to talk about brewing West Coast IPAs, hoppy beers. You know, we're going to dive into all of that and more. But first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. G&D's micro-channel condensers are built with all-aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer brazed connections, Translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call GD Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt. Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt is the workhorse of many a brewery and is at home in a variety of beer styles. Crisp sources the lowest nitrogen spring barley from farmers in Fife up to Moray. During malting high cast moistures and a balance of optimal germination time and temperature, results in an even well-modified malt with a rich color and balanced sweet malt flavor, which is ideally suited to ale brewing. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com for more information on crisp Scottish pale ale malt or call 1-800-374-2739. So Steve. Yes. Yes. Oh, before this, can I plug G&D too? Because we have two of their chillers and they're fantastic. You are welcome to plug them. So I just want to say that. Hey, <laughs> hi, G&D. They're good folks. They've been supporting our podcast for years, and uh, we appreciate their support. And it's great to have a sponsor that every brewer I talk to has had wonderful experience with and uh, and respects. So, so there you go. Yeah. Add us to the list. <laughs> Very cool. So, Steve, talk to me about Cloudburst. Give us the uh, the historical background on you brewing. Um, you know, what got you here, what, uh, led up to the creation of Cloudburst, and, uh, and then we can talk about, uh, the beers that you focus on. Totally. Yeah. Um, man, what got me here? Uh, I guess starting, we can start back to my undergrad days. Um, I went to a little school in central Maine, uh, called Colby college, um, where there's really not a lot to do. Um, but, but drink you know, craft beer. Right. Um, and so, uh, kind of, uh, one of my first memories at school there, you know, you have this like orientation, um, where a senior kind of has a group of freshmen and, and they kind of like get you acclimated to the, to the campus. And, uh, he, he gave, uh, our group this hot tip that there was this, 
um, small brewery in uh, the woods, uh, 20 miles from campus, um, where they didn't really care how old you were. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so the that, usual reason people choose craft beer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we were like, let's, you know, one of these days, like, let's go check out this brewery. The brewery still, I believe the brewery still exists, but we did, uh, drive up to, uh, someone's house. Uh, there was a barn, uh, maybe like 50 feet offset of the property. Right knocked on the front door of the house uh, and it was an 80-ish year old man named Skip who answered the door. And we said, hi, we're here to buy some growlers. Um, and he said, oh, great. Uh, I'll meet you on over uh, at the barn. Uh, he hopped on a trailer, rode that trailer for like five minutes because it was an easy walk. We kind of walked aside the trailer um, to to that barn uh, he opened up the barn door and there was a seven barrel uh, pub system in there <laughs> with with yeah. four seven barrel tanks or so. Uh, asked if we were all 18 years old. I think the reason why they didn't care how old you were was because he thought that that was still the legal drinking age. <laughs> um, and uh, it should be, should be. It should know. be. Vermont supposedly is moving towards that direction. Yeah. Or they, they were. So yeah, we tried his beers uh, we, I knew nothing about beer. They, uh, tasted very bitter. Um, you know, kind of just like these amber ales that I think everyone was kind of making, right. uh, that never really had much, much, you know, much to them, but they were affordable. Um, it was a fun experience and that was kind of like my first, uh, inkling of like what the craft brewing industry was, um, after a few years in Maine, I spent a summer in Portland, uh, found myself drinking a lot of Allagash White. Sure. Um, decided that since I was spending all of my disposable income on Allagash White, maybe I should pop in and see if they're looking for part-time help. Right. Um, they needed help sweeping the floors and kind of building boxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I said, great, uh, sign me up. And uh, spent a summer working there. That was... Back in 2005, um, it was, I think Allagash maybe had like eight or nine employees, uh, fell in love with that entire team there. Uh, and that was kind of the first, um, aha moment that maybe I could like find a job after college in this type of industry. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so, um, uh, kind of having such a positive first positive summer experience, um, working for them. Uh, finished up school, um, found a job, uh, washing kegs at a brewery in Pleasantville, New York, uh, named Captain Lawrence. Oh, Captain Lawrence, sure. So employee number two at Captain Lawrence. Really? Um, yes. I I was probably in that brewery at some point in the, the, that 2000, uh, stretch. I lived in New York city and we'd go mountain biking up at, uh, Graham Hills in Pleasantville. Yes. Uh, Yeah. And uh, when we would do that, or Blue Mountain up at uh, in Peekskill, and when we would do that, I would pop into the Captain Lawrence, you know, tasting room, and just buy some growlers, and get some tasters. Totally. After a ride. Yeah, yeah. Scott was uh, Scott was awesome. Um, you know, kind of watching him start up his own operation. Yeah. Um, all the while, you know, living living in my parents' basement uh, in Connecticut, um, looking for you know a quote unquote real job. Uh, in the craft brewing industry, which was kind of more of the marketing sales side of things. Yeah. Uh, landed a job at Harpoon Brewing 
in Boston a few months after that in their marketing department, uh, kind of like the lowest level position, which was their visitor center manager, um, right. giving tours, talking about beer. Sure. Um, that, that was, that was fun for like a year, but realized I really wanted to be on the other side. Um, so called Jason Perkins at Allagash back up and said, do you have anything in production for me? And he said, sure. Yeah, we'll find something for you. Uh, moved back to Maine and, um, over the course of almost two years, you know, went from keg washing and bottling to the cellar and, uh, up onto the brew house. Um, so really learned uh, to brew um, by making Allagash White, you know, seven times out of, you know, eight shifts. Um, but what a great place to learn how to brew, though. Yeah, it was it was awesome. There's there's such great people, you know, they For sure. they have they a lot of what we do at Cloudburst um, is cer- they've certainly made an impact on kind of the way that we we do things. Uh, yeah. So after brewing there, I was still dating my college girlfriend. Now my wife, she was in dental school at, uh, UConn may or may not have gotten the ultimatum of, Hey, you're in Maine. I'm in Connecticut. Right. We should probably like, you know, live together. So moved down to Connecticut, found, uh, not a lot of brewing jobs in Connecticut in like 2007. Right. I know their scene now is, it's, it's fantastic. Um, Man, there's uh, I had a talking about IPAs later on. I had a great IPA from Counterweight Brewing mm. Company. Um, it's just there's it's a it's a cool scene to see how it develops. But back then, not a lot going on. Living outside Hartford, uh, found a job at Thomas Hooker Brewing Company. Um, short, I guess before that, I had four days at Opa Opa Brewing Company. Uh, that was you know with all the jobs that I've had. That was a bridge that I burnt. I don't, you know, you don't light every bridge on fire. You, yeah. hope, you hope to not do it at all. But, um, you know, I definitely left left on not great terms at Opa Opa Brewing Company. But, you know, it worked I, out in the long worked run. out in the long run. Yeah. So Thomas Hooker Brewing Company. While I was brewing there, uh, Cambridge House Brew Pub, a small pub in Granby, Connecticut, had a opening for a head brewer. They kind of had nothing to lose. And uh, went, uh, took that job while still doing like night shift brewing at Thomas Hooker. Cambridge House Brewing Company opened up a second location, another seven barrel pub. Was working at three spots for a time. <laughs> not, not, yeah, yeah. not much fun. Um, hustling. Hustling. Totally. Grinding. Yeah. yeah. And learning a lot. I mean, I think anytime you have the first title of head brewer, the pressure is there. And uh, even telling people that, uh, you know, I've worked with in the past when they've kind of got that opportunity. The best places to become a head brewer are places that might not be, be known. Um, and you, and you might not necessarily like their reputation might be okay as far as beer quality goes, but that only leaves more room for you to come in and like it learn and improve and take risks because you don't necessarily, it's, you don't have a reputation as a, as a brewer, you know, at this point kind of a thing. Um, so, Left Thomas Hooker, stayed on at Cambridge House Brew Pubs. Cambridge House Brew Pubs uh, later uh, uh, closed for tax evasion, <laughs> which I should have known because I was getting paid in cash, you know, at one spot. You know, we were long on hop contracts at the other spot. Uh, it all worked out, though, because I had gotten accepted to the UC Davis Master Brewers program right. in 2010. So um, my wife finished 
uh, getting uh, her DMD. I went out to UC Davis for six months and uh, she matched for a residency program uh, at the VA hospital in Seattle. So Seattle we moved to in uh, 2010. The only place that would hire me for like a head brewing job at the time was Rogue's out, Outpost at the Issaquah Brew House. Yeah. Um, so I took over that 15-barrel system uh, for about a year, then was offered the job as a lead brewer at Elysian um, by my former boss, Dick Cantwell, um, who was buzzed at a beer festival, <laughs> tried tried my beer, said, yeah. oh, this is great. And I said, oh, well, I emailed you like three times with my resume for any any position, and you never responded. And he said, <laughs> I might have a job for you, I suppose. And so uh, turned around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was turned around, put in my notice, and uh, was at a lesion for five years as their lead brewer at the, the Fields location. Mm-hmm. You know, then the then the fame, the infamous sale to AB InBev happened. Um, I was fortunate enough that I had already had a business plan in the works, um, but that certainly expedited uh, my departure from Elysian uh, and starting Cloudburst right. uh, at the end of 2015. So uh, you decided to go out and do your own thing and, uh, you know, you have this plan to do it. I want to talk to you a little bit more about, um, you know, the kind of how you developed a vision for what Cloudburst is going to be, what you're going to brew, all of that kind of thing. But first, a brewery might have 99 problems, but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one. Old Orchard is already known for their quality concentrates, but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. When brewers need assistance, Old Orchard is just an email, phone call, or even a text away. Based in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, better known as Beer City USA, Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family, learn more at www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million brewery visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on BreweryDB.com. In just a few weeks, BreweryDB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of BreweryDB and increase your taproom traffic, set up your account on MarketMyBrewery.com. That's MarketMyBrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So you uh, you have this idea to, to launch your own brewery, and now you've got uh, the impetus to do it because uh, that scenario was changing at Elysian. Um, you know, how'd you come up with an idea for Cloudburst, and uh, how'd you know what you're gonna what you're gonna brew? Well, I mean, I think uh, at Elysian Fields, you know, coming up with new recipes every week, it's kind of similar still to what we do to this day. So I think, you know, prior to that that buyout, I. I had the best brewing job in a city with so many breweries because I had, you know, a long leash to make whatever beer I wanted to while not worrying about the costs of, of anything. And so I kind of thinking along those lines with cloudburst, um, you know, even, even my business plan at the time you have, that's that typical old brewery business model of like, here are my flagships, here are my seasonals, here are my special releases. Um, But around that time, you kind of, there weren't a lot of breweries that were were not doing that type of model. Um, They were all kind of designed for, almost designed for what like uh, 
distributors and large box stores like wanted you know that's right. kind of how they still almost think in in skews sure, right um and i knew that i didn't really want to fit into that mold because of how good i had it at fields i think uh i loved i love brewing flagship beers i mean brewing allagash white almost every day um there is beauty in um, trying to nail the consistency to a T every single day. And, it, and it's really hard to be a great production brewer. Um, but it's also not the most creative. Uh, it might not be the most rewarding for someone um, who just spent five years kind of making whatever they wanted to make right, right. Um, and following following one's, one's whim. So um, Cloudburst kind of was born out of what if we do a production brewery where we have no no set recipe no set kind of uh vision as far as uh, what beers will will be out in the market only that we as a brewery can kind of like have like a, a larger i guess like a larger umbrella of we're going to be hop forward we're going to try to do um you know highlight hops we like dark beers let's do some dark beers um you know, there's still really no lager brewery uh, operating out of Seattle, so maybe we can kind of go over there. Um, it was kind of like, how do we, f- how do we focus on like on a larger swath of beers versus like let's just like make these same beers over and over again. Yeah. How do you, you know, launching a new business? How did you expect to connect with consumers and, uh, you know, and make that because. You know, the the reason for these kinds of core brands and beers over and over again is, you know, people latch onto them and they want to keep drinking them. You know, how uh, how'd you set out to, like, you know, get people to buy your beer again? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of... Uh, or even for the first time, for that matter. Totally. We, I mean, we at least, Seattle is, is such a, a local-centric city. You know, they've always put emphasis on um, small, independent uh, businesses, um, businesses that... Um, are a little bit more transparent, uh, more genuine. Um, and so when we left, uh, when I left Elysian with six ex Elysian employees to open up Cloudburst, it was, it was <laughs> a, a little story around. Yeah. That. It was a little easy to say, stop yeah. drinking the corporate beer when we're going <laughs> right, to give you right. a new option. That story um, writes itself. Yeah. <laughs> so that part, uh, between that and kind of, you know, some of the beers that I developed at Fields went on to be, you know, big hits for Elysian. Um, and so I at least had enough of a reputation that right, this person right. should be able to um, recreate some of my favorite IPA recipes or, or similar types um, right. along those lines. Um, and then it kind of happened at the same time with like the craft beer growing uh, enough that so many drinkers out here, the most common question where you go into a bar or a bottle shop is, is well, what's new? what haven't I tried yet? And that's even gotten wilder and wilder to this sure, day. You sure. know, you look at untapped and, and, you know, everyone just kind of wants to tick and check in anything that they haven't had. Right. Um, and so kind of offering, uh, an IPA, um, every week, that was usually a different, uh, a different recipe for sure. But cloudburst IPA is kind of all do have, um, some similarities to them. Like we kind of, we certainly structure them, um, to our personal preferences i know that's almost cliche these days to say we we brew the beer that we like to drink and then (laughs) we sell the rest and 
but that was uh, that was the direction we were going in. It was just like let's offer a new IPA almost every week, so that when people come into here or uh, a bar or a bottle shop and they ask, "Hey, what's new?" Oh, this Clobber has a new IPA out, so you should try that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about um, how you make those IPAs because clearly, you know, you've uh, won plenty of awards with those IPAs, and uh, you know. In addition to that, have garnered the respect of peers for the the quality of, of those hoppy beers that you make. Um, and when I say hoppy beers, I'm, I don't just mean hazy IPAs. We're talking about West Coast IPAs, anything with hops and, and Pilsner as well. You know, you you guys play in those kinds of fields, and that does seem to be the thing that people know Cloudburst, you know, for. Um, how do you, you know, when you are thinking about an IPA, um, where does that creative process start? Oh, I mean, I, when thinking about an IPA, I think I, a lot of the word that we kind of always throw out first is balance. Um, oh, like, no. We don't. Right? The, the B word. I know. Uh. Do people say that all the time now? Um, I just love it because everyone says balance. I'm like, well, what do you mean by balance? Because balance means something different to every person. That's true. Just I, like the word complex, you know, sure. like you use the word, but what does it mean? That was my second word I was going to just say. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I, all right. So, all right. And then we're talking to brewers too. So let's, so balance to me is, is I guess four parts as far as, Having uh, a strong, strongly hopped flavor throughout uh, the beer and aroma while balancing bitterness um, and making sure that, here's another cliche word, but making sure the overall beer is actually is drinkable. Yeah. Um, and so to, to me, that means um, finishing quite dry. Yeah. Uh, our yeast typically attenuates our IPAs between 2.2 Play-Doh to like point eight play-doh um which is quite dry for for you know right most most hoppy beers because you you almost fear that if it's too dry that balance kind of is is not harmonious anymore with bitterness um it's going to taste too bitter or too harsh um and so really kind of we're just trying to make this hop forward beer that um is full of flavor uh, yet finishes dry and crisp enough that you want to drink more of it uh, is kind of the overarching philosophy. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, using using really neutral malts, um, using our house yeast, I think we might still be one of the only, like, you know, hop forward breweries that quote-unquote has, like, this house yeast that we use on, on every, every ale. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not playing the game of uh, this IPA is going to be hazy, so let's bring in some London Three, or this yeah. is a West Coast IPA. Let's bring in some Chico. What is what's that house yeast? House yeast is uh, it's called uh, corporate ale yeast. It's A thirty corporate ale yeast. Okay. So yes, yeah, so we got to name it. So it's actually a Legion's house yeast. Oh okay. Um, and so when AB purchased a Legion, you know they stopped ordering yeast from Siebel. And uh, that yeast is now banked at, at Anheuser-Busch. Um, the Siebel strain that we were using at uh, Elysian was BRY96. So another one of those, um, you know, a little like cloudy histories, but they say it comes from New York somewhere. Upstate yeah. New York, this, you know, ale yeast that is is kind of American and kind of English. Um, you know, it, uh, it's low ester. 
Um, it flocks well. Uh, it's highly attentive. Um, and so we couldn't, we couldn't access that anymore because I think there were only a few breweries going through, um, you know, Siebel to kind of get that yeast. One was La Cumbra. I don't know if they still use it, mm. um, but they kind of just stopped offering it. So we had to kind of beg and, and plead for a, a slant to be sent to a, a brewery in Portland that we've never met anyone there from uh, so that the Imperial yeast people could then kind of pick it up, clean it up uh, and prop it up. And um, we got to name it since it was a new strain to their bank and we made it publicly available because it, <laughs> It certainly should be. Yeah. Um, and so that's the yeast we use, this uh, corporate ale yeast. <laughs> oh, I love, I love the dig. That's, that's classic. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, so you've described, you know, the, the general behavior. That is the same yeast you use it for both hazy or cloudy beers and for kind of cleaner West Coast style or American style IPAs. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's one of those those yeasts. So both Zach was brewing at Elysian, our other brewer, uh, and myself. So kind of the impetus was this is a yeast that we are incredibly familiar with. Um, we ferment it uh, slightly cooler. It's a it's a pretty long primary fermentation, um, and really kind of just uh, focusing on almost minimal flavor impact from that yeast. There are mm. some there are some pretty like stone fruit esters um, from it, and and you can certainly see that. Uh, the warmer you ferment it, um, you you probably wouldn't recognize our our beer. And so, yeah, we we kind of derive our haze when we're doing something hazy um, from either uh, our our grain, but also our mill settings. Um, a lot of it's hot polyphenols, and then um, I know you kind of walked around a little bit, but our the shape of our fermenters really unitanks. We don't have any conditioning mm-hmm. tanks. Um, they're 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 squats and have yeah. quite a like a large diameter, um, and I think a lot a little bit of that has has some effect on on kind of creating some of this haze. I just assume it's because you have short ceilings in here and wanted to kind of maximize that kind of thing, but uh, it was not by design, right? <laughs> but uh, we're in w- this kind of you know bunker you know uh, old old building with you know yeah, um, so. With that kind of you, you know, so you, what you're saying is that if those were taller tanks, then you're going to potentially end up with higher pressure, especially you know lower down in that tank that might cause more of that to precipitate out. Yes, yeah. I mean, we've seen it at least with our. We have a couple of tall, skinny tanks, and uh, we certainly see more. Those beers brighten up faster for mm. sure. Um, whatever kind of voodoo is going on, yeah. whether it's hydrostatic pressure or. Uh, something that we are, we inadvertently don't actually know what we're doing. I, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's okay to admit, but yeah, uh, yeah. But yes, they, I, to me, like, this is where the magic happens. This is, yeah, this yeah. is. There's only so much you can control. Um, do you take some steps, you know, on those hazy IPAs to kind of solidify that? I mean, obviously, you're you're going to use some uh, some ingredients uh, in the the grist to kind of foster that too. Um, you know, are, are there there methods that you use in order to kind of solidify that and keep it from falling out because people buy a hazy ipa they they want it to be hazy totally i mean we we have i mean a few ipas that we can show you that have a have a beautiful haze uh stable haze to them are, are still just you know raw two row and warm and pills base yeah um our mill gap setting is pretty tight um and so some of that 
uh, Hayes, we, we can attribute to kind of um, having just a tighter mill setting. One of those things that you don't mm-hmm. really think about, you know, you you kind of go straight to the, to the wheats and the oats and right. spelt and some other type of like uh, higher protein adjuncts to kind of create that haze, which, which we do as well. Um, but sometimes it's just a matter of uh, having a really awesome, uh, you know, mash ladder ton and being able to kind of uh, tighten that mill gap a little bit. Yeah. A little bit more. Yeah. With that grist, you, you do keep it generally pretty simple. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of our philosophy is, is, you know, keep it simple, stupid. Um, sure. As far as uh, where, when we're designing a beer, a lot of it kind of comes from, there's kind of two ways we approach designing like a, a new IPA. And one is what's the overall flavor profile that we want, you know, out of this beer. And I think kind of just coming up with, with an end game thought really helps you kind of then focus and streamline on how you're going to build that beer together. Uh, conversely, the other thing is like, do we want to build a beer around a specific hop variety or a specific combination of hop varieties? Um, and that's kind of the two starting points of like, yeah, here's our blank recipe. What do we want to do? Um, but as far as our, our malt bills go, yeah, I think kind of along the lines with a lot of people, we, we certainly use, uh, Rarturo as our base malt and Wireman pills is kind of our, our secondary base malt, um, we feather in, you know, white wheat, uh, red wheat. Um, we are transitioning from anything flaked over to malted. So instead of using flaked oats or flaked barley, uh, flaked rye, we prefer to use an oat malt or a rye malt. Um, Why is that? That that is kind of coming down uh, to some like newer some some newer topics of uh, beer soluble iron in like the gelatinization process. Pat, really something that I didn't care about for until like a year ago or so mm-hmm. where, um, you know, you get a canning line, you have your Anton Parr, you're really focused on, um, you know, chasing DO the entire time. Um, and so you can kind of get into this, you know, DO world that um, our specs, you know, for a hoppy beer with, with some haze, some more turbidity, we do see higher DOs that on beers that have, um, a higher turbidity to them. I don't know why, uh, because I'm not a packaging brewer. <laughs> Although now I am. Because you were putting it all into draft and totally. into kegs before the pandemic. Sure. Um, but so like our, you know, our uh, unshaken DOs for hoppy beers, you know, we're hoping for mid thirties and our shaken DOs are open for mid forties PPB. Well, we started kind of like looking at shelf life. Obviously, you know, you're going to kind of build this library to then assess uh, the quality of your beer, your packaged beer, uh, going forward, even though we, most of our hop forward beers are kind of, kind of don't exist after, you know, three or four weeks or so by by our model. And we started finding that, you know, like beers that had more higher flaked content seemed to not necessarily have like an, an oxidative character, uh, you associate with like poor packaging, but it almost was kind of this, like more of this mid palate flavor we were kind of picking up on. Um, and then, you know, around that same time we had sent some beers to uh, Chris Swerzy who, sure. um, you know, competition run, director com- for the Brewers Association. Yeah. 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 I'd sent him, um, some, a pale ale with a, uh, a hop research council, uh, experimental variety. Chris is also involved with the HRC. Um, we fell into these hops. So whenever we kind of fall into these experimental varieties, we like to send beer out to, we're not involved with the HRC, but, 
people in the HRC said, taste these beers, what you just made with their hops. You know? Right. Um, so I sent him out some of uh, those pale ales along with uh, a smoked porter and some other little beers. And he, he started talking about the smoked porter and, you know, which um, – you know, which specialty malts did you use and um, kind of got along the lines as far as like, here's something that we're kind of starting to look at from a quality standpoint is beer soluble iron hmm. um, and kind of what what that means and what that does. Um, yes, this is the first time I'm hearing this term and I'm, I'm really curious. What is beer soluble iron? So it's it's iron that's coming off coming that iron that is absorbed uh, into the grain that uh is usually involved during um that grain coming in contact with not stainless steel so mild steel mm. um and so that plus a heat source so crystal malts roasted malts gelatinized uh grains um if that type of equipment isn't stainless steel uh you're going to technically have a higher iron content on that grain that grain that you're brewing with then at some point, some of that is going to exist in your beer and it's going to oxidize, you know, mm, quicker. Right. Um, much, much like, you know, if you were brewing with a tainted water source, I, I mean, I think a tainted water source is much easier to say this, I shouldn't brew with this, right. like what's going on. But, um, but as far as like the grain goes, especially for, you know, us, like such a tiny packaging brewery, you know, there's, a, there's what we have found is there's endless wormholes once you start, packaging sure, to kind of go sure, down sure um but so one of those wormholes in this whole tangent is just oh let's what what is that i don't know but we don't have the time or resources or a lab or a department to to really do anything other than the fact that we can say you know what maybe just for the sake of you know what the what little we do know we don't have to use certain types of you know ingredients per right. se right um, and so that's kind of where, where we went down that wormhole and why we're kind of moving over to, to malted, uh, oats instead of flaked oats. So now because but- through that malting process, it's only coming into contact with stainless steel. Those big malting drums are. It depends, it depends on the, uh, it depends on the supplier. Not yeah. everyone has, and it, and it, this is why I, you know, this is what, why Chris didn't really want to. I don't think Chris even really wants to be talking about this right now. So <laughs> whatever you edit, you know, it is fine. But he not suppliers are cagey about this. Sure, sure. They don't want, you know, when you start asking a, a maltster, you know, what what is what is your kiln made of? Then their first question is, well, why? <laughs> right, right, right. And um, and I don't think they're, you know, we're so we're I don't know if there's really any organizations, you know, I don't know if like AMBA or anyone has some type of, um, you know, like a uh, trade relationship with maltsters. Like we were just talking about the hop research council, right. or the hop quality group, which I'm a part of, you know, where we do, um, you know, field visits and um, not necessarily audits, but, you know, we are welcomed onto a property of a farm um, just to kind of see their operations. And then we kind of give, recommendations you know for improvements if if anything is is needed sure, sure. Um, and that took you know i know it took hop quality group a decade you know worth work of tom nielsen and mallet and Vinny to be like we're not here to like we're not like cops right we're, we're right. here to kind of just see hey your hops really are important to the beers that we make 
the more consistent and higher quality the hops that you're coming you know from the field through your facility like the better our beer is going to be and the more beer we're going to sell and the more hops we're going to buy um i don't know if that exists on the malt side of things right uh and so i i know it's a sensitive subject as far as like who's using you know who's whose equipment is what sure uh, and it's sure. and it's not always an indicator of quality too i mean you can go into some some of the best breweries in this country and they're brewing this beer on a on a piece of equipment that looks like it should be in the scrapyard right um, right and they still make fant- phenomenal beer so there are elements of this brewery that we're sitting in right now um, not the brew house and not any of the the fermentation cellar, but yeah, you know, there's some spots that look kind of you know duct taped together. Oh, here, totally, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Our our hot liquor chain came out of a dairy farm in Wisconsin, um, out of a field, and this, the stainless steel <laughs> yeah. on the inside was great. Yeah. And uh, a few years back, when Sierra Nevada was doing their beer camp series, Ken Ken Grossman came through, and you know the one of the the sayings at UC Davis, you know when one professor would always say, treat your brewery like Ken Grossman is going to like walk through it at, at <laughs> yes, any moment. Yes. And so you're like, Oh my God, this moment's actually happening. We need to clean up everything. Everything needs to be spotless, you know, big, big, deep clean. He's walking through the brewery. Cause I'm sure he's seen thousands of breweries at, at right. this point. And he comes to the hot liquor tank and he says, this is my favorite thing I've seen on this trip. It reminds me so much of all the equipment that I used. Right. Uh, in the eighties and you're like, Oh, I shouldn't be self-conscious with using this 50 year old crusty sure, sure. dairy tank. But well, let's flip back. What, um, you know, from some of your testing now you're brewing, you've got some with these, you know, flaked and gelatinized, you know, ingredients, but then you brew without them. Um, what kind of difference were you seeing in your beer in terms of flavors that started to develop over time? What kind of time frame? would that happen in and uh you know how would you describe the kind of threshold difference you know you you mentioned it's not like oxidized oxidized yeah it's more like a muddled uh it's more of a muddled note and granted you know there are so many different variables i mean we with all that we're never doing the same type of like hot bill um and so it's kind of things dropping off faster and dropping off, I know is another general term, but yeah, I think most brewers are familiar enough with their own beer where you're like, why did that drop? Why did that drop off uh, right. quicker than you know other beers that are similar? Um, but mostly, it's yeah, it's kind of more of this like this just a slightly more muddled note. And again, that could have been, you know, we are looking back at what what hot side hops did we use? You know, I think, you know, thinking of hop varieties and i know we do when we are building recipes some some hops uh are you know softer and get get kind of flabbier quicker uh, as the beer ages where yeah. some hops uh, are more resilient and sharper and brighter and uh you know almost become amplified over the aging process um and so those beers that we kind of noticed that kind of seemed to get a little bit more muddled maybe a touch flabbier um, this was still a timeline of like, we're looking at beers that are two months old. So like right. we, we'd never have been drinking these beers unless we, sure you know, saved them. So the, that's an age where they would have been out of your customer's fridge probably for a month already by that point. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we're looking, you know, it, it, although they, you never know, because I mean, I've seen c- consumers these days with nine and 12 month old and hazy IPAs and 
you know, it's always that that one person. Uh, people are still checking in our fresh shop beers from last harvest on Untapped. There's one guy, I, and I see that guy. Yeah. And I said, why are you holding on to that? Why? Are you, at least they're not rating it. Right. Which is sweet, kind of. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but yes, yeah. So these are beers that, you know, most people, and I don't think most people will really notice, notice anyways. Um, we kind of just noticed just by comparing, let's compare you know, two month old beers to each other and see what's kind of going on. And, right. You know, I, I think, uh, it's just important to kind of, to do, uh, we're putting beer out in the market and our market is still very small and, uh, we still care about what our beer would taste like had it been in, you know, the back of your fridge for two months. Yeah, uh, sure. Sure. Let's, um, since you brought up the subject of hops, we haven't talked about that really yet. And I would love to kind of dive deeper into the, you know, the way that you use and blend hops before we do that, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment, design performance and quality to the very highest standards in the industry with a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head on over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, food-grade lubricants are not your top concern. Your beer is. Lucky for you, Clarion has a passion for protecting your beer by helping to make your brewing system 100% food safe. When you switch to Clarion food-grade lubricants, you are reducing the risk of costly contamination and recalls to virtually zero, all while extending the life of your equipment. And that leaves you with the peace of mind to think about what really matters. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So, Steve, talk to me about, um, you know, building hop blends. Talk to me about the way that you you think about hops um, and how you've built an understanding of hops that uh, feeds into some of the strategies that you use to design new beers. Wow. Sure, yes. That's uh, just a big question. That's but, huge. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I used to kind of tell people that as far as we kind of first we divide hops up into IPA hops or hop forward hops, hop forward beer hops, if that makes any sense. And then kind of hops that you'd, you'd never really use in, in an IPA um, or, you know, an American kind of version of things. Um, and of those kind of hop forward hops, hop, hop forward beer hops, should we? Hop forward beer hops. Okay. Is there, is there a, an acronym we can create for that? Hop forward. F-H-B-H. Yeah. H-F. B-H. You should put that on a label, I yeah, guess. Yeah. People will totally get that. Oh, wait. Other half already did. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yes. Just kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So these. So in your mind, you've got them in these different buckets. We've got these IPA hops. Let's just call them IPA hops. Okay. Um, because a pale ale is a small IPA and a, and a double IPA is a bigger IPA. So Are there any beers other than IPAs? I mean, really just call them all IPA if you want them to sell, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, why not? Sure. I do wish the black IPA came back a little bit. Oh, don't we all? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's some, and I've had some really good ones lately. It was so good to get Wookie Jack back for a little bit there, right? That batch, uh, Sam Tierney was kind enough to send us four cans of that and it was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so yes, yeah, so so these IPA hops, I, I used to kind of divide them into like four quadrants per se. So you've got citrus, citrusy components, uh, tropical fruit components, um, and then you kind of have more of like an like an earthy, uh, like woody component, and then more of this like floral component. And and so when we were designing uh, IPAs, we're kind of thinking about what's the original profile that what's the kind of what's the vision of this beer and then what what hop combination can we use to push and pull other varieties so um, a lot of times we kind of build build a beer around you know uh, a like a, a dominant IPA hop and I think there's really only like five or six hops that you can really like build you know that can really as a single hop make make an IPA yeah um, what are those hops for you? The the hops that just make an IPA. The hops that make an IPA. I mean, Citra, Mosaic, Simcoe, uh, Strata, and then Strata, a newcomer to your list. Strata is is phenomenal. Yeah, um, I'm I'm, we're, I'm so stoked on Strata. Uh, and then I think for a fifth one, you know, I would add uh, like. Nelson Sauvin, or you could add Galaxy, but now we're kind of getting into these hops that um, a bad lot of one of those hops is is not going to like be a great IPA, single right, great IPA. Right. But I guess you could kind of say that about about any variety. Um, so those are kind of like what we. What, but the risk factor kind of ramps up when you start talking about something like Galaxy. So yes, totally. A gal- yeah. And I, I mean, I'm, did you see the comments uh, from like last month at all about like kind of. Uh, the criticism uh, of Galaxy via, you know, Hot Products Australia. Um, so we had, had a conversation with Connor and Tim of Cellarmaker last summer um, on the podcast, and uh, they were very vocal about their opinions on Galaxy. And uh, and Tim was telling me that after that podcast aired, that they had a conversation with Ops. They they were on a, a Zoom with Ops Products Australia trying to push and lobby for and build some, you know, figure out how they can, you know, bridge that gap and that, uh, nothing really came of it that, uh, you know, they were still going to blend lots and not allow for that kind of, you know, selection and granularity. And so, you know, it is what it is, but at the same time, there are also brewers who are not as willing to take some of those risks anymore on that product. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, that's basically in a nutshell. And, uh, I'm trying I my hope is that Connor remembers that we're tagging on to his Galaxy contracts uh, for this yeah. coming year. I okay. need to remind him that, yeah. that he had a couple boxes stashed away for us <laughs> um, because he will. Say, I mean, those guys, those guys are also so passionate about about hops, right? Um, and uh, I think n- none of us are afraid to send hops back anymore, right? Um, and say this isn't up to snuff. Um, and, it, and it certainly takes a lot of uh, trust and you know a back and forth relationship to be able to be comfortable enough to be able to do something like that right. with, with a broker or with a farm. Um, so, anyways, those those are kind of the hops, I guess, back on the building of an IPA recipe where most of our IPAs are going to have at least one of those varieties in there. And right. I think I think a lot of a lot of IPAs kind of do, and then and then kind of think about how those hops play well with other hops, uh, you know, versus some hops that um clash um a lot of it's trial and error and a lot of it's kind of um i don't know more of like a 
more of just this like sixth sense of of some things that should work and some things that shouldn't work and um it's still kind of all coming comes back to like that that vision that at least like the focus of like what you want out of the ipa before you're, you're brewing it yeah um so yeah i actually i can show you i i then kind of went from that at, like kind of this like quadrant scenario and i ended up creating kind of a um kind of like a like a venn diagram of those components and because you know hops are complex right? right so they all have lots of different uh you i know, see what you did there but yeah. yes uh they have yeah they, they all have lots of attributes and so right. um kind of a, a more overlapping like venn diagram I, I had made for this like ipa presentation in uh in brazil like a few years back that i was flown down there uh for and so um that at least kind of made a little bit more sense as as far as like well you know uh, you can really then nerd out and say, well, early harvest this versus late harvest this. And now they're even in different, you know, right. bubbles and things like that. Um, so it, it's like there's always another like layer to to each variety and just becoming more and more familiar with with that variety, with how it's processed, what farm it came from, uh, when it was harvested, like during during that window. Mm -hmm. um, all those things kind of factor in our decision to when to use uh hops you know in a recipe so um i mean we have like five or six lots of citra in the cooler um, we contract two separate lots um, and then we tend to kind of like keep uh lots from different harvests specifically for certain places to be added during the brewing hmm. process so that's interesting you'll have a character from a prior year that's just kind of unique you'll keep holding on to just that you know, part of the, the lot so that it could add something in a future year just because. Totally. Cause you never know what you're going to get next harvest. And right. so, um, and we, we are at the point where we, we, you know, we do select, um, our own hops and, and that certainly helps. But even when you're rubbing, you know, selection itself is kind of this inherently flawed process where you're, you're rubbing, you know, uh, a handful of hops that came out of a, a 200 pound bale, and so this little piece right. is supposed to represent a large chunk of this thing. And that, you know, that acre had 10 bales of this thing, but you're only rubbing a handful out of one of the 10 bales. And then that is all going to get blended from that whole farm, uh, which could have been harvesting eight acres of citra that day. So there's a, there's, there's no way to fully, you know, know and predict right, like right. What, what you're getting, even if you're selecting your hops. Sure. Um, every harvest. So just having a known variable right. is just a way to kind of hedge against that. I mean, you know, you're talking about individual plants next to each other, similar. I mean, they're the same genetically, but you know, um, the, the, who knows what's happening in that living thing and totally. how that's going to be different. But uh, you know, over time it's, it's you average and, and you know, create this aggregate and it does average out any of those smaller little pieces in there. Um, you know, but you're right. It's, it's a interesting process. You probably drive yourself crazy trying to get too precise about it. Yes. Yeah. 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 And you can, I mean, there are some there, you know, I, I guess, uh, I think every, uh, there's, you know, there's a little bit of crazy in, in every brewer, especially, sure, you know, the sure. ones that are kind of coming up with, with the ideas. And so, um, it's all about knowing, you know, knowing your limits of like how, how much you can perseverate over a certain thing. Right. Um, as far as hop selection goes, really, really what, what we want is just, we can, we know we're confident we can make a great IPA with just above average, you know, hop quality. Um, 
And I think that's every brewer's like dream is just to have not, not a dud lot. And I think, you know, uh, as far as like advocating for hop contracts, like that's kind of how you, how you avoid that, you know, not, not, not to say not to be like a hop contract pusher, but I mean, we only do about 2000 barrels of beer a year and we have contracts with five or six different, you know, brokers or farms every year. Yeah. Um, and we're contracting like 95% of our projected usage of these hops. Mm-hmm. Um, just so that we have some say over the hops that we're using versus what's available on a spot market type of thing. Um, And so we're just prioritizing, you know, in a year like a pandemic where you're going to be long on hops, well, at least the hops in our cooler are the hops that we picked and uh, are happy to to use eventually kind of a thing versus uh, I'd rather have those in my cooler and be short tens of thousands of dollars versus have this money and then buy some hops that are, are, I'm not going to be happy with. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get back to that mental process. You, you know, you have your quadrants, you know, and your kind of layered Venn diagram because each of these hops, even when they're picked or what that selection might be for that might be a little bit different. Um, what's that next step in kind of idealizing and, and kind of mentally figuring how these things are going to work together? I mean, so we, once we kind of, kind of have our combination, uh, and thought of like, you know, what, what we want, uh, this IPA to exhibit, um, we build, you know, the, uh, you know, the hopping regimen. So we have always added hops to the boil kettle, multiple editions, really? whether it's pails, IPAs, double IPAs, whether it's old West, school style, old school, man. Yeah. Multiple hot side editions. Multiple. That's yeah, it, that, that's not cool anymore, Steve. I I know I I but you know it, it's it's so it's so apparent. I think is you guys know too. Like the more IPAs that you're drinking, especially like the hazy ones, the more so they lack depth. They kind of just drop off. Hmm. You, like the, you're drinking it, you're smelling it. They're meant to be this like high aroma impact, but as soon as you swallow it there's nothing really left. It's, it's hollow is kind of how I think about it. And I think without adding hot hops to the boil kettle, um, you're gonna, you're gonna kind of have your less depth and kind of this more hollow, like mid palate and finish. Um, it's interesting that you're talking about it, not just in terms of the bitterness that it's adding, but also, you know, some sort of kind of consistency and fullness and, and everything else to the beer itself. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like we, when we, we want our IPAs to, um, taste as good or if not better on your last sip of a full pint than, than your first one. And it's always been my assumption where the first sip is the one that's like, Oh wow. Like this is, this is fantastic. And then, you know, with a lot of beers, by the time you're done drinking it, you're like, all right, I'm kind of, I'm kind of over this beer. Um, whereas we'd rather have someone open it up, uh, and say, okay, all right, let me, let me have another sip and figure it out. And by the end of it, you're like, wow, that was, that was really great. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to have another one or or try another like beer of theirs kind of a thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm a firm believer that that, that one is basically, um, more kettle hops, you know, it doesn't have to be, we add hops at, at boil, but we add hops, um, typically like in our IPAs anywhere from 15 to 10 minutes left in the boil. And there's usually uh, anywhere from five to two minutes left in the boil too. And it doesn't have to be a lot of hops to go a long way. Hmm. Um, One of the fun things about doing collabs with, with friends and 
uh, other breweries is you kind of get a peek under the hood about how they design beers too. Um, and we did a double IPA uh, that was packaged at the beginning of the pandemic with Great Notion, who mm-hmm. makes fantastic sure, hazy beers, sure. um, award-winning hazy beers. And I, they were doing this double IPA, kind of an imperial version of, of a beer that we brewed here four or five years ago. And I really wanted to add hops to the kettle because I don't think they've ever <laughs> added right, right. hops to the kettle. And, uh, you know, they they did. And uh, they added, you know, I think we did on a 15 barrel system, they ended up doing an 11 pound bag of citra hops with five minutes left in the boil. And they were kind of nervous that it was going to make this beer too bitter for yeah. their, their drinkers palates. But when I, when I, you know, got our case, I thought it was fantastic because it, it didn't just, it, there was enough hop flavor that sat on your tongue afterwards that wanted you to take another sip. Yeah. Um, and especially with some of these sweeter, you know, hazier IPAs, that bitterness, especially if it's this nice, smooth bitterness that tucks into it and, you know, without that kind of old school ragged, you know, and rough bitterness, you know, if, if it's well-placed bitterness that has these other, you know, especially using something like Citra that brings other elements that help kind of smooth and massage that bitterness, then uh, it can be a really pleasant thing in that kind of context. I mean, I don't know that people are that afraid of, I mean, I should say I tend to keep craving more bitterness in most of these IPAs. Totally. Yeah. You know, and that um, that is less of a disqualifier than something that is thin and sweet. Yes. Yeah. 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 Where I, I think talking to a lot of brewers these days, we're all kind of looking for more bitterness. And I think that kind of leads into this, you know, West Coast IPA was never really gone, but it seems like more and more people are, are starting to come back around to it. Um, I'm hearing it anecdotally, you know, from brewers that uh, people are asking for the clear IPAs again. You know, even consumers that may have been ordering that hazy IPA, like, you know, it's happening. And and part of that, I think, is, you know, brewers are making lighter, you know, all pale malt West Coast IPAs that all allow the, that hops expression out there. They're using the same hops and they're, you know, kind of pushing some of those same fruit characters. So it's not unfamiliar to people. Um, and some of these West Coast IPAs now are better than West Coast IPA has ever been. It's really fun. Talk to me a little bit about how you, because you play in both of those uh, those realms. And you make the those hazy beers, and you also make clear West Coast IPAs. Um, you know, talk to me about the interplay between those two, and how brewing one might inform the way you think about uh, you know building a recipe for the other. I mean, we kind of we 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 blend a, a lot of the a lot of times our lines are blurred here for sure. Um, and then we had the same conversation with Connor and Tim because they brew hazy West coast IPAs sure. that are very dry, but also, you know, have that kind of uh, awesome fruity contemporary hop character. Uh, and it's just fun to watch people, you know, watch you all playing in these kinds of in between spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like when we want to push more West coast, I mean, there's, it's kind of easy on the on the dial as far as to kind of ramp up a little bit more um, earlier additions on on our boil kettle, um, and then we're we're adding clarifiers. You know, we we do um, oil flock uh, BWS in the kettle. We'll use some biofine. You know, uh, during conditioning, and that's that's really like the only difference that we're doing at this point since mm. our yeast is the same. Yeah, our terminal is the same. So as far as like perception, you know 
uh, water treatment does change. Um, if we want something to be kind of perceived more of a hazy, um, we'll certainly kind of ramp up the calcium chloride. Um, but every beer, whether it's Lilts more West Coast or more hazy, uh, we're, we're still adding, we basically add gypsum to the mash. We add calcium chloride uh, to the kettle um, at boil. And, and that's um, kind of the only water treatment as far as salts go. Um, and then pH adjustments uh, during sparge with phos acid uh, and then with lactic acid in the whirlpool to kind of just get our wort pH where we want it to be. And, you know, to kind of depending on if it, if it's hazier, or if it's more West coast, you know, we're going to tweak, tweak our salts and our acid, like, like any kind of chef would right. to kind of make the final dish kind of hit all the marks kind of a thing. Um, and that's a newer thing too. I mean, uh, between Tim at Cellar Maker, Joe Pinehouse, you know, uh, Evan at Green Cheek, Bob at Highland Park, they, they're, they're more water nerds out there because they don't have great water in, in LA, you know, we have right. great water here. Yeah. Um, I don't think I ever added any salts to like an Elysian beer recipe other than like, you know, a dry Irish stout. Of course, we're going to like throw some gypsum in there and, and try to, you know, do that more traditional, like let's, let's mirror the, the water source of this traditional style. Right. Um, but now really kind of like playing with salts and acids to, to get, just get your work to exactly where you want it to be so you don't have to really worry about the rest you know as long right. as your fermentation is is clean um you know it kind of does does the rest for you sure sure um so yeah we've we've talked about hops and this kind of interplay um are there any uh you know interesting elements you mentioned you know obviously tank geometry is one piece of the the fermentation puzzle and we i guess we talked about your corporate yeast um you know do you you know especially with the you know with these hazy beers versus the the west coast beers you know are there any fermentation concerns in those um you know that uh are especially unique or uh you know the tweaks that you found to to help uh, improve those or make those uh, uh ultimately finish the way you want them to finish yeah i mean i guess like you know i think people tend when they see hazy they do lean towards more sweet so fermentation wise you know if we're going to mash a little bit a little bit hotter but you know nothing nothing too uh, you know out of the ordinary i think um you know a beer that we would want to be drier i mean our yeast is so dry but our mash range is usually between 151 uh for things that we really want drier and in that and a greater perceived bitterness um, to just something that's like 154, 155 for, for, I mean that our yeast will still get down to like two high twos, you know, for mashing at like 154, 155. So, um, I mean, fermentation wise, we, with our like kind of cooler, slower primary fermentation, it's usually around 13 to 14 days for primary. Um, really what we've kind of started, uh, to do is play around with the timing of our dry hop. Mm. I mean, another old school, I guess I, I can, even though I, even though we're a young brewery and I'm a relatively young brewer, I, I still consider myself a little bit more old school as far as our processes go. Right. Um, you know, we're kind of one foot in one foot out. We're basically, uh, starting to, to tweak and change our dry hop regimen. Right. So the timing of our dry hop. So, uh, previously, you know, primary fermentation around 13 days is when we, um, is when our beer is sensory VDK negative. Um, then we, uh, drop the temperature a tiny bit. Yeast is all off. 
uh, of our unit tank, and then we're dry hopping at ambient for about a week. Uh, crash, carb, package. Uh, but you know, as hop loads increase, um, that like us kind of waiting for the beer initially to be VDK negative, then adding a larger dry hop charge, you know, you see that secondary spike, that VDK creep. And so that's basically tacking on another 13 days before, you know, that dry hop uh, is mopped um, for us to then crash and package. So now we're kind of, it's always that like that yeast play game where like once that yeast is cropped, do we dry hop on day seven while we still know it's, it's, you know, I don't even, we don't even really even know where it is in the VDK curve at day seven. We're assuming it's probably still ramping up uh, to kind of get ahead of the dry hop creep. And that's kind of where we're leaning towards more. Um, but yeah, that old school, like more traditional way of dry hopping was like primary fermentation's done. Now we dry hop. Um, considering then when we need yeast, do we need yeast next week, this week kind of a thing. Uh, and dry hopping earlier and earlier when you would assume you've got more healthy yeast uh, in suspensions, a little bit more active, less dormant, um, to then expedite uh, and mop up that VDK, you know, quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't have a lab. We don't have a microscope. Right. Um, you don't have a microscope. We don't even have a microscope. Oh, man. So the, the uh, you know, for as much of as much of some things that we really kind of like nerd out and dive into as far right. as the science component. Anton Parr C-Box, but you don't have a microscope? Yeah, the Anton Parr C-Box was the first lab equipment that Man, we bought. okay. I guess a pH meter, we had that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, cropping and pitching yeast, we do by volume. Uh, so, uh, vo- sight, taste, volume, you know, we're either pitching 15 gallons or pitching 25 gallons, depending on the size of the batch. Mm. Um, and again, that kind of comes back. That is kind of one of those benefits of just knowing your your yeast. If it's the yeast that I've been using for 10, 12 years now, yeah, you know, you kind of are are a little bit more in tune uh, for sure. that. Sure, sure. But yes, that does kind of freak people out that that we don't have a microscope. So I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what our cell counts are. Yeah, but you can you can test the viability just by taste. I mean, you look. I mean, it's 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 you know, it's keeping it simple, like. We're, we're, we're looking at that yeast, uh, before we crop, you know, we we're basically, you know, getting, getting the, the dead stuff off, looking at it. Does it look healthy? What's the consistency of it? What's it smell like? What's it taste like? Good to go. I mean, um, I think if you have everything else, uh, you know, in a row, it should be, it should be kind of like clockwork and, and fairly predictable. And so, sure. um, that's kind of, that's, that's the, that's that's the vibe that we're in right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, you know, as we finish up here, let's zoom out a little bit. Um, what, uh, what's the, uh, immediate future look like for cloudburst last year, you opened up a, a tap room, uh, in another neighborhood here in Seattle in the middle of a pandemic, which, you know, what a great business move to open a second location in the middle of a pandemic. Um, what, you know, what are, what are the next steps for cloudburst? Where do you see this going? And then, uh, What's that bigger picture? Where do you want to be? What's this the measure of success for you and for Cloudburst? Oh, that's a great question. Yes. Um, I mean, at this point where we, and, you know, we kind of talked about this a little bit before, but um, kind of prioritizing, you know, why I started a brewery was because my passion is brewing, uh, right. creating beers, uh, making the beers, and um, 
that's something that I don't ever want to push myself out of. So as far as like production growth goes, there's only so big we can be. And we're kind of in this happy spot of about 2000 barrels of beer a year. Um, and we don't really see much, uh, you know, more volume growth from that. Um, part of the opening that second location, which was, you know, obviously in the works before right. the pandemic was how do we continue to like be a healthy business um, sure. when you're not growing anymore right. as far as production goes and of course that the answer to that is you know the more beer we can sell over our own bar at the highest possible margin sure yeah and so you know kind of going going from there i mean uh that second location we have a couple tanks uh over there that we have uh toted wort over for some stainless stainless lagers that were co-fermenting with brett so kind of like brett pilsners mm-hmm. um because we haven't played around both zach and myself haven't played around with any any wild yeast or bugs in this building because yeah. the exposed 120 year old timber is you know six inches from some dry hot ports so right. we didn't want to bring you know fire <laughs> uh, right. into into this space so i mean i guess as far as uh like where we see ourselves going i mean um it's kind of nice being a, like a brewer run brewery like it's not like we're chasing this growth or right. anything um I'll always consider myself a brewer first and like a business owner is, is my secondary role that I have to do so that I can still be the brewer that I, I want to be. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, if we weren't in a great financial situation, then those priorities would have to change or, or this place right. like, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't exist. Um, but you know, we are doing okay to, you know, have, uh, a lot of happy employees that, um, have been here since the beginning in the early days um, and kind of working towards um, some type of work-life balance. Uh, maybe not so much me, but I try to make sure that everybody else right. does have that, you know, kind of give people the, the jobs that you wish you had. Um, and so the next step is then kind of for me to be able to, it, it's really hard to turn turn off work, I think, for any small business owner, especially right. in the brewing industry where you, you know, so much of the the brewers and the owners are uh, connected to that business that it's hard to like make a separation. I'm certainly not there at all yet, and I don't know if right. I ever will be. I don't think that's kind of the. I don't think that's the type of person I can be to like just not like leave and not think about it. You know, even right. on vacation, you're thinking about what's going on like at, at your place. So yeah, I think for a five year goal, it's like maybe we can chill out and like <laughs> not have to perseverate right. over everything that's going on. And, and a lot of that is just having the right people in, in place and yeah. uh, keeping them happy. So but I yeah. love that, uh, you know, one of the things you said earlier before we started the podcast was that you want to stay on that brew deck. Totally. So you, you don't want to get so big that you're not there on the brew deck. Yeah, that's the most important thing. I mean, the, every single Cloudburst beer made has just been myself and Zach. It's it's two people that are making the the beer all yeah. the time, and and we've you know have people uh, come and go that can certainly affect that the the end product of the beer. But um, the most important thing is for me to be making beer on that brew deck. Well, it's fantastic beer, and it's been fun to talk to you about how you make it. Thanks. Um, GD Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Crisp Scottish pale ale malt is the workhorse of many a brewery. Try craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard. Set up your account on marketmybrewery.com today. Let SS Brewtech outfit your brew house and gain peace of mind with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this very podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. And if you're a pro brewer, consider our all access 
Pro subscriptions that combine the magazines with exclusive online content and more. And, uh, you know, of course, if you're a subscriber, you can go in and check out that uh, back issue. I think it was a 2017 issue with a breakout brewer on uh, Steve and Cloudburst. And I, I do think there's a homebrew scale recipe in there along with it. And so, uh, hey, it's a good reason to be a subscriber. Um, Steve, if people want to learn more about Cloudburst, find the beers that you make, etc. Where do they find you uh, on the internet and in real life? Oh, man, on the internet, uh, our website is cloudburstbrew.com. And uh, we're pretty much, at this rate, only active on Instagram. We have yeah. Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts. And, you know, Instagram is kind of more more aligned with what, right. what we're doing. Uh, as far as beer goes, I mean, we you got to come to Seattle. That's kind of it. Yeah. Um, you know, we have one small account in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, a handful of accounts outside of Seattle's city limits, but... 97% of our beer is Seattle city limits. So come to Seattle. There you go. Yeah. It's a beautiful city. Great beautiful scene. state. Yeah. 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 Lots to do and see. Um, well, thanks for talking with me on the podcast today, Steve. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.